0: Following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. This morning, I mean, this is we. This is a passage I'm approaching with some fear and trepidation. This morning, this passage, this is a passage that I feel like is really tough to teach. But is, if, we can, if we can wrestle with it, it's going to be really, really beautiful and just lift up this great big vision of who Jesus is. But it's going to be, there's some dense stuff that we've got to get through this morning, okay? So I need to know that you're awake. All right, are you, are you awake? Are, we, are, you, are you ready to get to work this morning? This is not the point in the service where you lean back and take, take a little nap, yes? If you are six months old or under, then you can take a nap during this time, okay? Bo Bradley. But otherwise... You've got to lean into this, okay, uh, because you've got to be alert and focused this morning. If you're a note taker, get out your pen, get out the paper. If you've got a device and you take notes on your device, get that out. Whatever you need to do to keep yourself awake, because if we can just get through the thickness of the text and I can get rid of this fly, then we are, well, there, is some, there is some good stuff here, okay, but it's, we're going to have to dig for it this morning is what I'm trying to say. All right, so Matthew chapter 5, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, Verses 17 to 20 this morning, Ashton Warner is going to come and read this passage for us. Where's Ashton? Thanks, Ashton. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Great, thanks Ashton. Okay, so I thought we'd um, have a little bit of fun this morning to start out with and talk about some of the really weird commandments in the Old Testament. Just think, I don't know whether you know some of them. I don't know whether you realize this, but there is some weird stuff in your Bible. (laughs) Weirder than you might think, okay? Uh, I mean, books like Leviticus, Numbers... Deuteronomy, they have some very, very strange commandments in them. Okay, Let me just share with you a few of my favorites, some personal favorites here. Uh, in Exodus 22, verse 2 to 3, if a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. So, what that means is if you're going to kill a burglar, make sure you kill him at night. Because if you kill them in the day, you're guilty. So don't kill burglars in the day. That's what that law means. Okay, here's Deuteronomy 25, verse 11-12. If two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand. Show her no pity. So I'm just reading the Bible, people. This is the Word of God. What are you laughing at? So. So wives, you know, you just, if, if your husband's in a bar fight, just be careful. Could, could lose a hand. Okay, let's move on. Um, Leviticus. <laughs> Le- <laughs> oh man, I knew I shouldn't have done this. These, okay, Leviticus 11, this is great. Um, so these are the birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the owl, the little owl. I think the point is clear. Don't eat owls, okay? No owl burgers for lunch. So, you know, there's a lot of other ones, and you've got some in mind as well if you've ever read these books, but this is like, there is some really weird stuff in these books, and if your friends knew that this was in the Bible that you read, they wouldn't be your friends anymore. This is really odd. And, and as Christians, typically we just, we don't really want to think about this stuff because it's so strange. And we don't know what to do with it. So we just ignore it and we breeze past it. And we're like, just take me to Jesus. Just take me to the Gospels. Take me to the Red Letters. That's much safer territory. And we are going to the Red Letters today, okay? You'll be pleased to know, we're not, I'm not actually preaching on any one of those passages Uh, But I just want you to be aware this stuff is in your Bible. And what we are talking about today, what Jesus is talking about, He's talking about how we should interpret those commands. So He's talking about those, not those specific verses about the owls and things, but He's talking about how we should approach the Old Testament. And particularly, how we should approach all of these commands that seem to us to be abstract, irrelevant, boring, and really weird. So this is a a really important passage in Matthew 5. It seems difficult, and it is one of the more challenging passages in the Sermon on the Mount, but this passage is actually very important for understanding the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, as we will see. It's a very pivotal passage. It's important for understanding several things that come after it that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, because this kind of sets up what is coming. Uh, It's important for understanding how we should read the Bible, And the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's important most of all for seeing the importance of Jesus. That's what this morning is all about, is lifting up the importance of Jesus, the centrality of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus over all things. That's ultimately what is going on in this passage. Okay, that's the big picture. Now, let's dive into the details, okay? And this is where it gets pretty dense. So, verse 17, we're just going to work our way through it. So, keep the text in front of you if you can this morning. Uh, Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he's talking about those two sections of the Old Testament uh, the prophets. It's fairly straightforward. Those are the prophetic books in the Old Testament. The law, it's important we understand this, that's not just law in general. It's not just moral law in general or the law of a nation. This is specifically the law of the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, That's called the Torah. Torah if you're a Jew, the Torah. And it contains the law that God gave to Moses to give to the nation of Israel. So law, in this context, quite specifically means the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And what Jesus says here is, I have not come to abolish the law. Abolish, it's the Greek word katalio, and it means pretty much what it says, to do away with, to overthrow, to destroy. Interestingly, I think that's exactly what most Christians think Jesus has come to do. Don't we? Most Christians think, well, yeah, I, I thought the whole point of Jesus coming was that he abolishes the law. Now that he's come, we can eat owls. Now that he's come... We don't have to worry about all these weird commandments about not sowing two types of seed in your field or not eating garments of wool and linen and all these things. Like, Surely now that Jesus has come, that's the deal. He's abolished all of this stuff. So isn't it interesting that Jesus himself says, Nope, I have not come to abolish the law. This is something we get wrong. What has he done? I have come to fulfill them. This is the key. This is really the key to the rest of the passage. I have come to fulfill. The word fulfill is the word pleroo. and it means to, to fill up, to bring to completion, to bring to perfection. So how does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, in one sense, he fulfills the law by keeping it. He keeps the law perfectly, fulfills the law. Uh, And that's true. He he does that. But what, what he's saying here is much deeper than that. It's not just about Jesus obeying the law. He fulfills the law in this much, much deeper way. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law. Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, The law is just a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So that's a good image to keep in your mind. Right you think about when you see a shadow on the ground you see a shadow if it's an unusual shaped shadow what do you want to know what's making the shadow what's causing the shadow if you see the shadow of a person on the ground what do you want to know whose shadow is this where's the person the shadow is not the reality it's just the shadow now when you read the old testament law in fact when you read the whole of the old testament you want to think of it like a shadow think of the law as a shadow and the question we should be asking ourselves is what is making this shadow Where is the shadow coming from? Or who is the shadow coming from? Because what Hebrews tells us is the law is a shadow of the good things, the good things that are coming. And what is the good thing that is coming? Who is the good thing that's coming, Gary? Thank you. Jesus is the good thing that is coming down the track. So you could think of Jesus standing at the center of the Bible and casting a shadow back across the whole of the Old Testament. That's how we should read our Old Testament as Christians is that we see the whole of the Old Testament like a shadow. Jesus is there. He's casting his shadow. Can't quite see him. It's murky. It's shadowy. His name is not explicitly mentioned, but he's there. He's on every page. He's in every story. He's in every single law. The whole of the Old Testament is like one big shadow, and it's pointing towards the reality of Jesus. Switch metaphors. The whole of the Old Testament is one big signpost, Pointing towards Jesus. Yes, it had a purpose in itself for Israel. Yes, the law was good for Israel. But ultimately, its purpose was much greater than just it. It pointed towards Jesus. So Jesus fulfills the law not just by keeping the commandments. He fills it within himself. Jesus is the embodiment of the law. He is the fruition of the law. He is the culmination of the law. He is the consummation of the law. It always, always pointed towards Jesus. He sums it up within Himself. He wraps it up within Himself. He's the one the law was always all about. The law always pointed us towards Jesus. And every single little commandment within the law always pointed towards Jesus even the weird one about the owls, even those weird commandments that seem so unusual to us, in some way, they all point towards Jesus. Yes, they had some sort of value for Israel's life at the time, but their greater purpose was to point us towards the person of Jesus. So I know you all want to know about the owls, but let's just deal with that one. Where there's all of these weird things about what foods you can't eat, and how you can't eat these birds, and then and some commandments, you can't even eat parts, certain parts of animals. That's all about the kosher laws within Israel. That's all about dietary laws. All of that ultimately points towards Jesus, who is the one who makes us truly pure before God. That's the point. All of these laws were about keeping Israel pure, keeping Israel clean in a ritual sense. But ultimately... That points towards Jesus, who is the truly kosher one in the deepest sense and who truly makes us pure before God. So we look to Jesus now for our purity, not what we eat. We look to Jesus now to make us clean, not what goes into our bodies. We look to Jesus now to make us truly pure before God, not the food that we eat. Yes, of course, we still look after our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. But at a deep level, it is Jesus who gives us purity and cleanliness before God. That's what those laws were pointing towards. So, yeah, we need help in working this out. Yes, we need the, the, the guidance of teachers and Scripture and so on. But ultimately, these laws all have a way of pointing towards Christ. I heard of a pastor who planted a church in America. And I remember reading about this, and he said that the first sermon series I decided to do in my new church plant was preached through the book of Leviticus. That gen- Conventional wisdom generally says that's how you kill a church. Right? You kill it before it even starts, and you preach through Leviticus. But he did. He preached through Leviticus. And I remember this quote from his interview where he said, and I made sure that every sermon pointed to Jesus. Every sermon ended with Jesus. That's good theology. That's good preaching. That every one of those commandments in some way works its way through the biblical story to Jesus. Otherwise, we just stay within a worldview of Judaism. And we may as well be sitting in a synagogue hearing it from a rabbi. If we are going to be truly Christian interpreters of Scripture, we need to look at the way all of these commandments point towards Jesus. And believe it or not, that church survived. They survived Leviticus. One day I'm going to preach on Leviticus too, and we'll survive it as well. So, this is fundamental. Uh, To everything else Jesus says and to the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus comes not to abolish the law in the sense that it's completely done away with, but he fulfills it within his own being. Once you've got that in place, a lot of the rest of this flows on from there. He says in verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Uh, When he says here, the smallest letter, uh, literally the Greek word there is iota. You know that phrase that we have when you say, I didn't get one iota of thanks for that. That comes from this, this word. An iota is the smallest Greek letter. It's a letter of the Greek alphabet. And Jesus is referring to that here. He's saying not even the tiniest little letter of the law is going to disappear. Now, again, that can make it sound like All of these commandments still have to be followed today, but that's where we've got to read it in view of fulfillment. Jesus has fulfilled the law. So yes, these commandments continue, but they continue in Christ. Yes, these commandments are permanent, but they are permanent in Jesus. Yes, the law continues to live, but it lives because Jesus lives. These commandments are not ones that we need to now go to and apply every single one of them directly to our lives. The law lives on because Jesus lives on. He is the fulfillment of the law. That's why it's so important that we read our Bibles with Jesus at the very center. He's the lens through which we read all of it. Otherwise, if you take all those commands that we looked at at the beginning, literally, and we just go and apply those, plonk them down in our lives today, we're going to run off in some very interesting directions. We need to read it all in view of Jesus. So then the question becomes, okay, so what does that mean then for how we should live? If we're not bound by these specifics, because Jesus has fulfilled those, what does that mean then for how we do live and how how we do uh, apply Uh, the teachings of Scripture, and the Old Testament to our lives today. Well, this is where verse 19 comes in. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The, The real key here is what Jesus means by these commands. What are these commands? And I think what he's saying here is he's not talking, he's not talking at this stage about the law of the Old Testament. He's talking about these commands I am giving you. These commands now that come from me. These commands that are the Sermon on the Mount and all of the following teachings that Jesus gives. These are the commands that Jesus wants us to keep. These are the commands that determine uh, who is great and least in the kingdom of heaven. These are the commands that are important for us. So what Jesus is saying here is that he is sitting in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's like Jesus fulfills the law, and then he reinterprets the law for us and shows us now how we should live in the kingdom of heaven. Let me just try to paint this picture for you by just stepping back for a minute from the Sermon on the Mount. We haven't talked about this yet in the Sermon on the Mount series, but this is a good time to do it. Just take a step back from thinking about the whole Sermon on the Mount. What is it all about? You have Jesus. Jesus goes up a mountain, and then he starts teaching this thing, which has become called the Sermon on the Mount, and he is giving these laws. He's giving these teachings from on top of a mountain. Whereabouts in the Bible? Have you heard about someone who went up a mountain and then came down and started giving the law? Moses. Moses. Yay. Yeah. Some of you have read the Old Testament a little bit, right? Moses. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Moses was the one who goes up Mount Sinai and then receives the law, comes down with the Ten Commandments. And so now we have Jesus going up a mountain. See, no detail in the Bible is insignificant. Goes up a mountain. And now Jesus is dispensing this new law. Jesus comes as the new Moses. That's what's going on. That's a dominant theme in the book of Matthew. Jesus comes as the new Moses to give the the new law from the new Mount Sinai for the new people of God. He's Moses 2.0. He's the new Moses. And, And when you read it that way, then you see what's going on. Jesus has fulfilled all of this. Now he's giving us this new law. And it is new. But it's not discontinuous with the past. There is this this continuity. That's why Jesus goes on to say, you've heard it said, but I tell you. This is going to be the next six sermons. They all start this way. You've heard it said, that's the Old Testament law, but now I tell you. See what he's doing? He's pivoting from the Old Testament. You have heard it said, and now I tell you this. And so it's like Jesus is a filter through which all of the Old Testament laws now pass. And then he reinterprets and he shows us what they look like in the new, in the kingdom, in the new covenant. So every law in the Old Testament, we bring through that filter of Jesus. Sometimes what happens when you have an Old Testament law and it comes through the filter of Jesus is that it stays exactly the same. So the command in the Old Testament, honor your father and mother. It's one of the Ten Commandments. What happens when you get to the New Testament? Stays the same. Paul talks about this. Honor your father and mother. It's pretty much verbatim what was in the Old Testament. So that one has come through the filter of Jesus, but it's basically the same. Other commandments, they get deepened or they get broadened out. So the next two passages we're going to look at, the commandment, do not murder, and the commandment, do not commit adultery. What happens to those two? They get deepened out. Now murder includes even hatred. Now adultery includes even lust. So the categories become much broader now. It's not just murder. It is murder, but it's also even the one who says fool to his brother, even the one who hates somebody, they are now guilty of murder. So Jesus is, again, fulfilling and then now reinterpreting this commandment. And then some commandments look radically different. And this is the case for the first three that we looked at this morning. You know, these commandments that, are, that seem to us really strange, they are radically transformed in view of Jesus. So an obvious example is all the animal sacrifices. Why don't we need to offer animal sacrifices anymore? Because Jesus is our one true sacrifice, right? So that commandment comes through the filter of Jesus. He fulfills it. He is our one true sacrifice. And now, how do we apply that now? We look to Jesus as the one who makes us right before God. In a sense, that's how we apply those commands in the Old Testament about offering bulls and goats. It's not that they're abolished. It's now that the way we apply those commands is that we look to Jesus. He's our sacrifice. He's the one who makes us right before God. He gives us His righteousness, and He is our sacrifice. So he radically altered. We don't have to go and offer animal sacrifices. Now we trust in Jesus. We don't have to keep the Old Testament food laws anymore. That comes through the lens of Jesus. And now, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. Now we can eat whatever we want because Jesus is our freedom and Jesus is the one who gives us purity before God. So every commandment in the Old Testament comes through the filter of Jesus. And let me just flip this around one other way. Hang in there. We're getting close. I'll flip this around one other way to look at this. When we keep the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we are keeping the Old Testament law. Think about it that way. That's, that's sort of the reverse of what I've been saying. But when you keep the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, when you listen to Jesus and when you walk in the way of Jesus, you are indirectly keeping all of the Old Testament law. Didn't Jesus himself say this? When he was talking to the teacher of the law, and he said, the whole law is fulfilled in these two commandments. Love God, love others. That's it. The whole law is fulfilled in those two commandments anyway. So when we keep those commandments, we love God and we love our neighbor, we are implicitly keeping all of the Old Testament law. Not literally every single commandment, but we're keeping the substance and the essence of what the Old Testament law was always all about. One ancient Christian commentator puts it this way, Christ's commandment contains the law. Therefore, whoever, whoever fulfills the commands of Christ implicitly fulfills the commandments of the law. So you can think about that. Even as we walk out Jesus' teachings to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and cultivate the Beatitudes, we are, even maybe without realizing it, we are keeping the whole of the Old Testament law. Behind these commandments sits the whole weight of the Old Testament. To to follow Jesus and to follow his commands is to keep the law in the Old Testament, because it's all fulfilled in Christ. Okay, one final verse to get through here, and then we're done. It's another challenging one, though. Jesus really doesn't let up in this passage. He just keeps the, the challenges coming. Verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will... Certainly not into the kingdom of heaven. So it sounds again like Jesus is saying now there's this ridiculously high bar. You gotta cross this bar or else you're never getting into the kingdom of heaven. You're never gonna go to heaven. And the bar is so high that you've got to be better than the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they were the experts in law keeping. They were the experts in being righteous. And Jesus is saying, You're not even gonna get a look in unless you're better than them. Well, the key here is to understand that what Jesus means is not that our righteousness needs to be greater in degree. Our righteousness needs to be greater in kind. It sounds confusing. Let me read a quote by John Stott. He says it much better than I can. He says, Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than in degree. It is not so much, shall we say, that Christians succeed in keeping some 240 commandments when the best Pharisees may have only scored 230. No, Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper being a righteousness of the heart. Does that make a bit more sense? He's saying it's not that the Pharisees are here and you've got to be here. He is saying there are two totally different kinds of righteousness here. Two totally different types. There is the righteousness of the Pharisees, which is all about externals, all about just keeping the rules, all about just the outward behaviors. You need to have a greater righteousness, and it's greater because it is so radically different. It is a righteousness of the heart. It is a righteousness that comes from within, and not just from within us. It's a righteousness that comes from God. It's a righteousness that begins where we began in the Sermon on the Mount, with coming to God and saying, "God, I'm poor in spirit, and I don't have any righteousness of my own." That's one of the things the Sermon on the Mount should do for you: is to make you realize there's no way I can do this. This is absolute. All these commandments that Jesus is giving me, there is no possible way I can ever live up to these. Good. That's a good starting point. Because then what you realize, you need a greater righteousness. Greater righteousness than anything you could ever achieve. And so we come honestly before Jesus and we say, Jesus, I need your righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, that you have done for me what I could never do for myself. That you have kept these commandments for me. You have lived a righteous life For me, you have obeyed for me. You've been faithful for me. You have been obedient for me. And now, Jesus, thank you. You've given me your righteousness. What a gift. You've given me your faithfulness. You have given me your obedience. You've given me your standing before the Father. This is a righteousness that we don't go out and achieve by ourselves. It's a righteousness that you receive from Jesus Christ. It has to be received. It can't be achieved. But that's the good news of the gospel, right? That Jesus gives us this righteousness, and then he renews our hearts, and then out of that, he starts to cultivate in our hearts a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. A hunger and a thirst to obey and to start taking some steps. But we don't do that like the Pharisees. We don't do that just to kind of go through the motions. We don't do that just to be good Christians. We do it because God's changed our hearts. We do it because Jesus has taken the unbelievable weight of our sin before God and absorbed the wrath of the Father, and now made us right before God. And out of just sheer gratitude and love, we say, Jesus, now I want to obey you. Now I want to pursue you. Now I want every day of my life to try and walk closer to you. And so I do want to look at these commands in the Sermon on the Mount, and I do want to pursue them. But I do it, God, out of your grace. Not out of my self-effort, not out of my willpower. I do it, God, out of your grace, knowing that I am already accepted, already loved, and already held in the everlasting arms. That's how we should approach the Sermon on the Mount. So the righteousness that we are called to is infinitely greater, not because we are just going to obey a whole lot more commands, but because it comes from the transformation that God brings about in our hearts, which is a sheer working of His grace. And that's good news, isn't it? That's good news for everybody. Good news for all of us. (laughs) Okay. Uh, One of my favorite Bibles, as we wrap up, uh, is the Jesus Storybook Bible. Any of you have that? It's such a good one. It's a kids' Bible, but it's so good for adults as well. And I we recommend it to people because it does such a good job of showing how particularly the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The subheading is every story whispers his name. Isn't that great? Every story in the Old Testament and the New whispers the name of Jesus. Let me finish with some words from the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible that pull all this together for us and then we'll pray. There are lots of stories in the Bible but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. That's who Jesus is. And my hope is that even though there's a lot of detail in this passage, that what this will do for you is stir your heart with a greater love for Jesus. That's really what it's all about. I pray that we would come to see him as the center of the whole biblical story and the center of history and God's purposes in the world. And even more personally, the center of your life. And that you would make Jesus, just as he's the center of the Bible, he would be the blazing center of your soul, out of which you live every single day. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. And we just lift up your name. God, I just feel led at the end of all this just to worship you and just exalt your name. Jesus, lift up your name and just say, God, we praise you. We give you praise, Jesus, that you are the one who has fulfilled all that came before you, Jesus. You are the hope of the prophets. You are the one the law always pointed towards. It was always, always all about you, Jesus. And now, thank you, we live on the other side of that, Jesus, and we can look back and think back now and see your death and resurrection at the, at the very center of everything. Jesus, I pray that you would take your, the words of Scripture and my words this morning and press them on the hearts of your people. Lord, bring this alive for us in our heart. May this not just be dry, boring theology. May this not just be a Bible study. God, may this be the, the flame of love for you, Jesus, being stirred afresh in our heart. God, that we would grow closer to you, that we would learn to love you more, that we would be more grateful for this amazing gift of righteousness that we've received. And then, Jesus, that you would lead us forward by your grace. God, we pray that you would come and become more in our life than you are now. God, have more say over who we are than you do now. Have more control, have more power, have more influence over our lives. We just want to be so filled by your Spirit Jesus and just so surrendered to you that we just live out of your grace and you live your life through us every day. So come and have your way in us and in us as a church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shore Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455 Thank you for listening.